Welcome back to the History of the Barbarians podcast. Season 1, Episode 7, titled Springtime for the Goths. My name is Josh Hirschman, and we are here to continue our journey through the barbarian history with our story of the Goths. Our goal this week is to establish two clear groups within the Goth world in the lands north of the Danube and the Black Sea area. So when we left our friends last time, they were just beaten by the Romans and forced to make peace. The Romans had pulled out of Dacia, which gave the Goths a new opportunity to fight the Carpi, Vandals, and others instead of the Romans. The Goths are working to establish some political stability from Dacia all the way to the Don River north of the Black Sea. And I have to mention here that the Goths were in no way a single political entity or even two at this time. We're going to attack this episode in sections. We're going to talk first about the Western Gothic territory that is just north of the Danube River in modern-day Romania and Moldova. And we will later on talk about the Eastern Goths, which is going to be basically the Pontic Steppe, southern Ukraine, uh, around the Dniester and the Don Rivers. So at or around 300 CE, we'll begin to calling these Goths the Tervingi, the Western Goths, that is. And it's interesting to note that the Tervingi actually called themselves the Vesi, which we're not too sure of the epitomology of the Vesi, but the Tervingi probably called themselves this. The land that the Tervingi inhabited was soon to be referred to by other people as Gethudia, or the land of the Goths. And much of what we know about the Goths during the later third and up to the Battle of Adrianople come from the Tervingi Goths, or from the people who interacted with them, like the Romans. But we can see what happens in the West could explain what is happening in the East as well. So as peace is established with the Romans, the Goths are essentially not worried about the gigantic empire near them, and they can worry about expanding their influence over smaller and less dangerous enemies. So basically, the Romans have achieved this peace by defeating the Goths both on land and now have secured the Black Sea with a stronger naval presence, and they've kept up their end of any agreements with the Goths. Additionally, the Romans were able to give a piece of valuable land to their enemies to fight over as a distraction, which worked quite well. That means the Turingi can go to war with the Carpi, the Basterne, the Sarmatians, Vandals, and any other Germanic or non-German people near them. So through the 280s and 290s, we'll see some Turingi Goths team up with the, the Tefali to defeat the Carpi, the Basterne, and the Vandals, which will eventually lead to the complete defeat of the former two groups. The Carpi and the Basterne will at some point submit to Roman rule and allow themselves to resettle and assimilate into areas of Roman land, and we're never going to hear from them again. So this goes to show that the Carpi and the Basterne are willing to become Romans, essentially, to find some sort of peace away from the Goths. And that's how strong the Goths become at this time. These Goths are therefore able to take control of parts of Dacia and the Carpathian Mountains, giving themselves more power. As their power grew, their influence became stronger over other residents of the areas north of the Danube. This area will sometimes, again, be called Gethudia. I'll post an image on the Facebook page to give us kind of an idea of uh, how this is working. 
The Tvingai were not a centralized kingdom, but were made up of many smaller power centers called Kunya, or the singular version referred to as a Kuni. There's not exactly a consensus on how many groups of Goths made up Guthudia, but there may have been six major centers of political influence, or Kuni, who would compete with each other and other groups of people. There were indeed more than six at various times, but during the time that we're talking about, early 300 CE, there may have been six scattered around modern-day Romania and Moldova. Each Kuni could be thought of as a sub-tribe of the larger group, similar to the idea of some Native American tribes in America like the Cherokee. There were the Cherokee, but within that larger culture, there were subgroups or clans that distinguished themselves from amongst each other. The Kuni would speak Goth and have freemen and skulks or slaves amongst them. Each Kuni appeared to have their own temples and cults that they would adhere to, but this is also a time of transition for the Tervingai religiously. A man named Euphilus, which means little wolf, whom was the descendant of a Christian slave brought back from Cappadocia back in the 260s, and part Goth, he would serve as the bishop to the Tervingai and would be cr given credit for the conversion of many at this time. Euphilus would help lead the conversion of common Goths to Christianity, but the upper stratum would adhere to their traditional religion for years to come. He would eventually be expelled from Guthudia and be considered an important proponent of Aryan Christianity. He's important to our story right now because he translated the Latin Bible into the Gothic language, which is how we get so many Gothic words in today's episode. We're going to visit Euphilus again by giving him his own episode to delve into the influence into the Goths and Christianity at large. So we're going to set him aside for right now. But in the world of the Tervingai, each of these groups would have a leader or chieftain named Arik. The Reek of each Kuni would be recognized as the leader of their respective tribe, would have the loyalty of that Kuni's warriors. So each Kuni would raise an army of soldiers and would be led by the Reek into battle. During the Federati times with the Romans, it's noted in sources that the number of 3,000 soldiers were sent by the Goths as a pretty typical number. So this army would, could be called a Hargis, and that 3,000 number, again, is given as the number that typically are supplied by each Kuni. A smaller group of soldiers within the Hargis or army is called the, Har the Hansa, which means horde. We're not sure the number of soldiers in a Hansa, but it could have been around a thousand soldiers. These soldiers would have all been foot soldiers at this point, as there's not a long tradition of horsemanship for the Turingai. This lack of horsemanship tradition meant that the Turingai did not really have a cavalry presence on the battlefield, but would outsource this to other groups like the Tefali, who are another Germanic group that we've mentioned briefly before. Uh, but this idea that the Tervingai did not have a, a long horseman tradition really goes into the idea of breaking stereotypes of the barbarians. And the introduction episode, we were talking about a barbarian riding his stallion and it really did not necessarily apply to a lot of our Germanic barbarians and, and in particular our Tervingai Goths. So back to our story. The Reeks were not monarchs though, at least not in any sense that we would understand today. They owned a house, or in the Gothic language, a Freya, and it would rule over his family and slaves, and the people associated with the Freya would be called Anbatos. 
and he would have absolute authority over the Anbatos and the Fralia, but he wouldn't over the people at large. Now, these Reeks would be elected from a tribal council of Fralia and noblemen alike. So as a noble, he would also have armed freemen that would be loyal to him called Siponios. And there would be several of these noble Froya within each Kuni, and the Reek would be the Froya that was the richest and most capable of them. Now, the word for these homes would be guards, and the lands around them would be called Gawi. The guards would be the center of the Kuni political and economic power. The Tervingai did not live in urban centers per se, but more in rural settings with farms throughout the lands. There are no real large archaeological sites for the Goth that would be equivalent to Roman cities at this time. Now, many of the people lived on their farms, but would be called at times to the local guard for various businesses. Now, there were also villages, and these villages are called Himes, and the Gothic freemen would populate these Himes. Himes appear to be much more communal than a nobleman's guard. It seems that they had shared farming and pasturing of livestock. The village would make decisions together in an open assembly called Gagums, which was at the town square, or Gorons. These assemblies would basically be the executive branch of the village to get things done. Aside from electing leaders when needed, as not all situations require a leader, they would debate group decisions and actions. Many times, the leaders would not even have absolute power, as there are stories of leaders being overruled in these assemblies. It is interesting to note that there seems to be a bit of a democratic bent to these people, which we also see at times in the Viking culture of Northern Europe, where they would debate issues and assembly called a thing. Now, also, many other Germanic people had a similar debate process called a folkmoot that seems to be somewhat related. These Himes or villages would be small, of course, but they have found some sites that cover 35 hectares, which for us Americans, uh, it's like almost 90 acres, which that is a large spread for sure. Some of the Himes were only like five acres. And we would see wheat, barley, millet, rye, oats, peas, acorns, and hemp all grown and found in many of the Heim trash dumps. They would raise livestock on these hymes and at the individual farms as well. That would include sheep, goats, pigs, and some horses. The largest number of animals kept, though, were definitely cattle. And cattle seems to have played a large role in the lives of the Tervingai, uh, even so much that the word for wealth in the Gothic language also means cattle, which is fayu. Now, the Reeks exerted much power and influence with their armies. It is typically individual Reeks that would lead raids into Roman lands or into neighboring barbarian lands. Sometimes Reeks would band together for a stronger raiding force, as we've seen many times in our story already. When a large threat or opportunity would, would arise, there would be the calling of all the Reeks together to elect a leader for the Tavingai. This leader would be chosen amongst the noble Goth Reeks and would be called a judge. It appears that this is a position that does not have complete power, as the judge needs approval of the other Reeks in many of his decisions, and is certainly not a permanent position. The judge would be typically limited to the area of Guthudia itself, and was not supposed to go into foreign lands. We see exceptions to this at various times, as we noted during several raids of the 200s. Now, the position 
again, would not be permanent, but would be held by the same person several times, like in the case of, of Keneva, from 250 to probably 271-ish CE. So as we see, the Turinga are growing in strength and centralization, uh, including more and more influence over its neighbors. And we're going to see a similar situation occur in the east with the Gruthungai. The Gruthungai are going to be the Goths that are based between the Dniester and the Don River region, which we're going to have a map up on the Facebook page to give us an idea. But again, this is like the Pontic Steppe, just north of the Black Sea, southern Ukraine, uh, right around where Crimea is. And this region is primarily steppe and would have a profound impact on its people that settle there. The Lans and the Sarmatians were the peoples that were present before and during the rise of the Gruthungai in the 300 CE. So we do run into some problems with the Gruthungai uh, during this time period, and we do not have any writing or direct contact with the Gruthungai from 291 to basically the 360 CE. Because of all the sources that we do have of Goths, they're all talking about the Turingai. But what we do know about them is kind of pieced together using Ammianus's writing, archaeological findings, and piecing together information from sources after the Gruthungai come back into contact with folks that provide sources. Now, the Gruthungai seem to have had a little more centralized kingdom than our Turingai friends. The Amals or the Amali family become the dominant uh, force going all the way back to someone named Ostrogatha. Jordanus, in his Origin and Deeds of the Goths, which is based off several writers, but probably Cassiodorus the most, lists several rulers of this time period up until someone named Ermineric. And I'll try to post a family tree for the Gruthungai leaders on the Facebook page, but Ermineric is going to be very important to our story later on when the Huns come storming onto the scene in the 370s. But the reason we bring him up now is that it is said that he ruled a large empire. Uh, empire may not be appropriate, but according to Jordanus, he had a huge influence in what we would call the Ukraine and would stretch probably north and northwest in areas close to the Baltic Sea. The SD people lived up in the Baltic Sea area, probably around modern-day Kaliningrad, uh, Poland, and or a little bit of Lithuania but were supposedly under the influence of Ermineric in the mid-300s. This makes Ermineric's sphere of influence over a thousand miles long from the mouth of the Don River to the Esti people up by the Baltic Sea. And there are several other peoples involved in the Gruthungai sphere of influence all the way up to the upper Volga and the Ural Mountains in Russia. All this land means that the empire would have incorporated much of modern-day Ukraine, parts of Russia, Poland, Moldova, and Belarus. The sheer size of, of this empire would have been impressive, but it cannot be backed up with any Gothic archaeological evidence in the area of the Esti or the northern areas of this would-be empire. A loose confederation structure could still be possible even with the absence of Gruthungai artifacts in the north. It certainly makes an interesting story, but we do not have any direct sources to confirm any of this either. Ermineric is said to be a great king and a fair ruler of all of his different ethnic groups in his empire. And when the Huns finally come into contact with the Gruthungai, we will hear a lot more about Ermineric. So that is about all we know of the Gruthungai at this time. Uh, so obviously it's a pretty limited. 
But this seems like a decent place to stop uh, since we've kind of run out of Grathungi info. And to wrap things up for this week, we we saw an extended peace between the Goths and the Romans, which enabled the Goths, both the Trevingi and the Grathungi, to become more centralized and much stronger. Next week, we'll pick up with the resumption of hostilities between Rome and the Trevingi that will set us up for the events that will lead to the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. So the materials that we used for information this week were The Goths by Peter Heather, Getica or The Origin and Deeds of the Goths by Jordanus, History of the Goths by Herwig Wolfram, and Rome's Gothic Wars by Michael Kulikowski. Please leave a review if you like the show. The good ones help other people find it. Subscribe if you are interested in following along this journey with me. This is a work in progress, and I want to make this better, so leave some feedback on Twitter at History of the Barbarians or on our Facebook page. And thanks for listening. We will see you next time.